Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode. The East India Company with Dr. David Vivers. Today, I'm thrilled to speak to Dr. David Vivers, Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at Queen Mary University of London. Dr. Vivers has recently published his monograph, The Origins of the British Empire in Asia, 1600 to 1750, which is a brilliant read. And I've been eager to get him on this podcast since hearing that it was out. And uh, I've read it in the last few weeks and it is fantastic. So, Dr. Vivers, thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, uh, I've, I've wanted to come on. Um, listening to the podcast over the summer fantastic podcast so so thank you any chance for a captive audience let's let's jump right in 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 the introduction of your book you explicitly refer to it as a revisionist interpretation of the early east india company so for the benefit of listeners would you be able to just briefly summarize that historiography and explain where you see yourself within it yeah absolutely um so i think really uh, what the book hopefully does is addresses the sort of two different strands of historiography which the book kind of juggles and situates itself in and and one of those strands in particular it it really hopes to revise so really it's about uh, the historical around how uh, the company operated um, and by extension how overseas European enterprises operated in the early modern period Um, and you know that's there's such a rich uh, historiography in the past 10 years Um, especially for the English East India Company it's really drawn attention to corporations and the corporate origins of empire Um, not just in in Asia but also in places like the Atlantic where where corporations have kind of been overlooked if you think about you know during the 17th century you had companies um, establishing territorial empires in Virginia, in in Massachusetts, um, the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, and when, when I say empire, obviously that ranges from territorial to commercial. Um, and of course, most famously, the uh, Dutch and English East India companies and later um, the, the French, the Danish and, and even the Swedish. So the kind of corporate model of, of empire has really kind of taken hold in the past 10 years. Um, one of my con- concerns, um, and while that's been a fabulous contribution to showing how the East India Company in its earlier period was a political actor. So we're uh, traditional historiographies look at the company as predominantly commercial and then only becoming a political or colonial actor in the later 18th century and in in the Indian context, especially with the Battle of Plassey and the assumption of territorial rule in uh, in Bengal. But the kind of past 10 years have blown that trade to empire narrative up by looking at this kind of corporate structure and the way in which companies were highly autonomous political actors able to um, you know wage war, raise taxes, maintain sovereign jurisdictions, engage in diplomacy. And that's been really interesting. Um, what I've and, and I should probably say that's largely been led by well, starting with uh, Phil Stern's work, um, his book *The Company State* in two thousand and eleven, um, and since then the historiography's grown. Most recently, I've just um, read and reviewed um, Andrew Phillips and Jason Sharman's 
um, outsourcing empire, which is a great synthesis of the research that's been done in this area. And that predominantly comes from the idea that European states in the early modern period were weak, relatively weak fiscally and militarily and had to sort of sub kind of outsource empire building to these private initiatives and that were able to pull their resources and and to manage overseas trade and diplomacy in a way that that sovereign nation states can't um so that's been rich my, my main concern is that the work on that's been predominantly from an english perspective um just and, and this kind of contribution to global history has been the way in which corporations you know operated globally and and often you know brought these global interests together but it's been predominantly kind of eurocentric um um wave of research so it's looking at corporations as uniquely european initiatives um, there's been a lot of work on English political um, economy and the way in which corporations grew from these ideas of mercantilism. And so for me, it's it didn't show corporations in their in their true kind of uh, uh, contribution to empire making, which was as these kind of very flexible, porous private initiatives that could integrate with other cultures and other political systems and 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 the way in which their autonomy was gave them a significant amount of independence from the interests of the nation state. So that that's that's a strand of historiography I was really interested in. How did the company operate? And for me, it kind of revises that kind of projection as the art that, that companies were arms of European nation states and actually their private uh, function gave them great scope to, in many ways, transform themselves, to insinuate themselves with foreign cultures and political systems. Um, and my book's very much about their transformation into uh, more or less um, Asian powers uh, and the way in which they didn't always serve the interests of their domicile nation states in the way that they were intended to. Um, so there's that that kind of strand. How did overseas corporations operate? What was the East India Company? Um, uh, but but really, I think hopefully the more significant contribution the book's made um, is this idea of um, how uh, that intersects with uh, research done on um, early modern Asian state and empire formation. This idea uh, in the sort of 10, 15 years, uh, especially Mughal historiography, that um, the Mughal Empire was a kind of decentered um, kind of web of clients and networks. Um, and this coming away from the old kind of um, 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 Richard's interpretation of, you know, Asian empires as territorial plunder machines, as centralized powers that gradually decline with the onset of European expansion. Um, so it's actually looking at the way uh, Asian empires were actually resilient and durable systems by the way in which they integrated foreign elements into their uh, imperial uh, frameworks and that helped them to become more economically and more politically robust so that they didn't necessarily see the East India companies as a threat as more uh, as an opportunity to utilize them as clients and as and as allies to help consolidate their own authority. Um, and there's been lots of work done on that recently, but but I mean, really my starting point was Sanjay Subramaniam's kind of theory of contained conflict, um, which kind of re-emphasized from the 1990s, the way in which there was a kind of parity in the early modern period between Asian states and, and European communities. Uh, and I think, uh, I can't remember the quote off by heart, but uh, um, Sanjay Subramaniam said that, you know, the the 17th and 18th century was this kind of period of like a long jostling and neither party getting an upper hand. And that that kind of historiography has developed. And a really good recent example is Adam Clulo's, um, uh the Dutch company and the, and the Shogun looking at the Dutch in Japan and the way in which <clears throat> uh, the Tokugawa Shogunate was able to completely contain the Dutch and, and limit their expansion and, and really um, exercised a complete power over this kind of thriving European enterprise. Um, so hopefully my book kind of contributes that, but but it really is revisionist. I hope hopefully in the way in which, for the Dutch in in um, in Japan or maybe the Portuguese in in Western India, there's a case to be made for Asian states um, overpowering Europeans and, and limiting and containing them. But for for me in the English experience in Southeast Asia in the early modern period. That 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 powerlessness, that subordination to Asian uh, power, really was the kind of key strength of the English East India Company because it enabled it to kind of adopt this subordinate um, dynamic that, as a trusted and loyal and and useful 
client of the Mughal Empire, it was, it was well rewarded. And gradually over time, it, it kind of really assembled this rather astonishing empire within an empire. So that by the middle of the 18th century, it already governs a kind of network of towns and cities and has thousands and thousands of subjects paying revenue and it's the largest trader in Asian goods. So it was that idea that, uh, you know, subordination to Asian states wasn't uh, a way to limit Europeans, but it actually facilitated their expansion. So that was really uh, uh, revising that historiography to show that European empires didn't necessarily project their force against European states, but often worked within Asian frameworks, that these systems were resilient and robust and durable and able to accommodate Europeans, not necessarily as antagonists, but as um, as subordinates and clients. So there's that kind of two strands then that hopefully the books engage with and, um, and ambitiously try to revise to some extent as well. It's interesting you bring up the Eurocentricism of the of previous histories, um, because something else you, you highlight is that in your book, um, in comparison to earlier works, you're not really interested in the, in the official papers and charters and such that came out of England, but more the records from those on the ground from the factories. Um, and so you, you show the debates and the arguments and the reactions to decisions made in the metropole and uh, how they affect the, the people on the ground. And I'm curious if you could expand a little bit more on that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, methodologically speaking, I mean, it really was about flipping the perspective um, as much as possible. Um, I mean, even still, you know, most of our histories of the English East India Company, you know, are very metropolitan skewed. There's very much about what did the directors want? What were the shareholders investing in? Who were the people that were sent out? What were their um, initiatives and, and, and aims? And it just it just helped to really reduce the agency and the significance of um, of the kind of Asian context in which they were operating, um, especially the, the kind of recent research on the overseas corporation as this kind of powerful actor. Um, it kind of ignored the way in which, you know, the moment you, you kind of sailed past the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean. You know, what you wanted and, and what your directors uh, hoped you would do was entirely relegated to what you're able to achieve and what the powerful, you know, the, the superpowers of the early modern world, the, you know, the Safavid Persian or the Mughal or or, or the uh, uh, Qing Empire, uh, what they would tolerate and what they would be willing to um uh, to allow so so for me it was about we're looking at the development of the eastern company from the wrong perspective um and that's partly i think methodological because of the richness of the east india company archive uh, and that isn't to say that factory records haven't been used they have but often it's the correspondence of uh, london to the factories in asia which often are privileged and are taken as a kind of foundation for understanding the company's growth um and that's why you get english figures having a kind of rather kind of skewed um, role in in understanding English um, expansion. It's kind of figures like Isaiah Child, the kind of famous Tory political economist that was also governor of the East India Company. Um, and, and for me, that was these weren't the actors that we really should have been focusing on because in the early modern period, power dynamic was skewed heavily in favour of the Asian elites that company servants dealt with. Uh, so for me, the factory records give kind of um, not an unblemished, you know, these are still carefully framed sources because most of them had to be sent back to uh, Europe every year for the director's consumption. And, um, and therefore they were often kind of heavily um, framed to provide a certain perspective, but generally they also included dissenting opinions. They included eyewitness um, affidavits, um, all of these kind of really interesting sources, which allow us to kind of, peek at under the hood and see if not quite the day-to-day -day events unfolding in factories in Asia but certainly gave us a, a, a I think a, a a less um manipulated picture um and then that's when you get the glimpse of all these fascinating Asian actors which are often marginalized in if we look at it from the perspective of London or, or the directors um everything from you know um Sumatran pepper farmers to um um you know um um, uh, Mughal governors and their extended families. So alongside factory records, things like um, memorandum, um, travel accounts, um, personal diaries of people that traveled out from Europe and stayed temporarily in Asia. And there were some fabulous ones, uh, more famous ones like the diary of William Hedges or Strange and Master, 
But at the Huntington in America, there's a, a fantastic uh, diary by a, a, a man who's just been kicked off the, the court, uh, kicked out of the court of directors, and he travels around uh, Asia, basically touring the company's uh, presence and um, you know slagging everyone off from Hosea uh, Child onwards. <laughs> and he gives this great critical account, but one in which you know it provides a counter narrative to the one where that's been largely manufactured and, and fed to us through the company's correspondence. So I, I really wanted to come away from that um, London-centric, Eurocentric perspective, and I tried to do that as much. For so yeah, the 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 sources are heavily rooted in Asia. It's the factory records, it's the diaries of people on the spot, and it's private correspondence um, as well to family and friends back home that uh, escape that kind of official reproduction of, of events. Um, so I think I, I say near the start of the book, you know, hopefully this is this is a um, an account of the British Empire in which the, the genesis of this empire is in Asia. This is where the, the real growth and development of the company happens. And it's not led by directors and political economists in London it's led by Asian emperors and and um, ministers and uh, governors and um, you know and hopefully more subaltern actors as well so yeah so I went in it you know very purposely to flip that perspective and and look at how does the company develop from an Asian perspective and it is really different I think Um, you know it's one of failure adaptation and subordination which isn't the usual narrative that we have for something as triumphant as the East India Company. I think you illustrate that um, quite well when you, you make the point that once you sail past the Cape of Good Hope, it doesn't matter if you've got a charter from the king yeah. or uh, instructions from the director. If the emperor of Delhi says no, mm. it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it, th- Their power is limited to their own kingdoms, essentially, yeah. and their own spheres of influence. And um, I thought that was uh, a very like obvious and yet somehow mm. easy to m- overlook reality yeah and just to just to speak more about those uh those asian actors like you you mentioned what world were the these company agents actually experiencing what did they find when they uh set up shop now in pax britannica we've we've last really looked at the east india company i think from the 1620s onwards so they're they've already got surat and i think they have a solapartum uh, that's right. Yeah, from 1611. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But what what world are they dealing with? What what is going on mm. in Asia? Yeah. Nice simple thing. A whole century, <laughs> a whole <laughs> continent. <laughs> but I think it's a good question because I mean you're framing it because often when we pick up histories of the Eastern companies earlier period, they're already, you know, in the know and established and that that's just a process that happens over a very long time. And I think that uh we don't pay enough attention to how do they get to that in which they're successful and this is you know partly my problem with some of the works on the existing works on the east india company they often pick up the story from sort of like 1758 onwards when the company has made a permanent uh, um, uh, joint stock corporation um, but actually you've got half a century over half a century of history in which the company is grappling with its new environment it's learning it's failing it's adapting um the winning formula doesn't really kick in until that later 17th century period so for me the kind of to understand what the company becomes and how it fits into narratives of the british empire later on really need to understand how it got to that point so i think it's a good question um i mean really there's two ways of uh, looking at this and i i kind of hopefully touched on these in the book the first one is that they're on the coattails of other europeans some newly established or establishing themselves and others long established um so i really think the great two influences on the english as they round the cape of good hope at the the beginning of the 17th century is um they're doing it um uh, with the dutch i think that's really important and um um you know there's been some great research that's hardly a neglected period um a study i think alison games most recently has has really taken a comparative look at the english and the dutch um but um what's what we kind of less focus on is the way that they're they're going co- you know at the same time learning um to get to grips with this you know the the indian ocean world is you know the center of the world in the 17th century it's home to the world's superpowers, um, whether it's the Ottoman, Persian, Mughal, Chinese or, or Japanese. It's the centre of world trade. The English are, you know, completely utterly the underdogs. Um, and one of the things they discover early on, as do the Dutch, is that what they have to offer is is not really what's in demand in, in Asia. So there's a, 
there's a kind of period of turbulence in which the company were hoping to open what they call new marts to vent their goods um predominantly you know english woolens um and and tin and lead um you know none of which um uh, are wanted in in asia um and i mean there's a great there's a great but the first factory they set up the sultanate of bantam in uh archipelago uh uh indonesia and um they um they they import massive amounts of uh of english woolens and you know it sits there for months and months the only the only goods they're able to sell is to convince some of the elites at bantam that they make fabulous uh, you know horse saddles um to be lined with soft english woolens and they do flog a few but other than that they realize that no you know it, it you know in a place that produces silk and some of the most beautiful and luxurious textiles in the world you know a coarse english woolen is is just not in demand so there's a there's a period of commercial failure and adaptation um that the English realised that they, if they don't have anything to offer, then they need to find the goods within Asia that they can sell. So there, there's a period like the Dutch in which the first 20 or 30 years they're learning to become, uh, they're learning to tap into the intra-Asian trade. And that is kind of buying in India and selling in Southeast Asia. Um, so there's that, that, that's the first upset for this idea of the company being a, an instrument of the, the English nation state. Um, is that it's set up to increase uh, English trade and to find new markets. But what actually happens is the company is forced to operate within the Asian commercial system, which has been well established for centuries uh, or thousands of years. And there's no room for English mercantilist designs or demands. Um, so um, so they're, they're operating with the Dutch. The Dutch are obviously um, more belligerent in enforcing their commercial aims. And there's um, uh, obviously a very famous race for the Spice Islands, which is, is developing. But the interesting thing about the Anglo-Dutch experience is that, um, that the English weakness or failure to really establish themselves, they just don't have the capital or the resources to participate in the intra-Asian trade um, like the Dutch do. The Dutch are, uh, you know, fiscally and, and you know, commercially far more successful. So um, after the first two decades, they're forced to, um, and they don't really join a union with the Dutch East India Company, but uh, the English Crown and the Dutch states um, uh, create a kind of joint Anglo-Dutch presence in uh, the Indian Ocean, where the English have to abandon English factories and move in with the Dutch. And they basically surrender their participation in the trade. They pay for half of the upkeep of all Dutch fortresses and, and factories and cities. And in exchange, they're given one third of the profits. And it's the Dutch that are conducting all of the trade and dealing with Asian elites. And, you know, in a way, it's not a bad deal because the English are, uh, are so uncompetitive and they are hemorrhaging so much money that they can just sit back and enjoy a third of this massive profit. But they lose the opportunity to forge durable personal relationships with Asian elites and rulers and um, and communities. And they realise this after about 10 years that they've been completely squeezed out. And one of the powerful lessons from that kind of rubbish period of joining with the Dutch is that they, to, to succeed commercially, they have to have a social and cultural presence and that uh, the kind of very kind of profitable Indian Ocean world of trade relies on personal and familial connections, for example, kinship um, between uh, different trading partners. So the company by 1620 are out on their own again, especially after the massacre of Amboyne, which sends the English sort of scurrying um, from Dutch um, partnership. And the focus becomes more on integrating themselves with some of these major commercial powers, um, establishing uh, mixed race families and getting to know who the movers and shakers are in some of the key ports like Surat um, and um, to establish kind of more permanent um, per, uh, more permanent presence in the landscape. So that's the kind of they're kind of feeling their way around this failure. There's a brief flirtation with Union uh, uh, joining with the Dutch. Uh, but the lesson by about the 1620s and 30s is they can't just come and go and, and, and get what they want. They have to establish a permanent presence and one that's firmly rooted in, in the landscapes they're operating in. So they begin to move to new areas in which they can put down roots um, and have some kind of viable presence. Um, but the, and the other one is that obviously it's the Portuguese. The Portuguese are the great success story of European presence in Asia. 
not in the in the respect of Portuguese empire um, and the kind of Goa-centric narrative of the Portuguese, which is one based on you know, territory of fortresses and colonies. That's kind of under massive strain and decline by the 1620s and 30s. But rather, it's like the Portuguese uh, diaspora, um, the way in which the Portuguese presence shifts from uh, Portuguese sovereign spaces to uh, spreading out across the Indian Ocean and establishing mixed race Portuguese communities in all the major towns and ports of the Indian Ocean world. And that creates a thriving informal Portuguese presence across the Indian Ocean and into uh, uh, China and, and, and Japan as well. Um, and that's more what the English start to tap into. Um, and there's a lot of uh, um, um, kind of marriage into these Portuguese um, communities and they are a mixture and that, that's really important thing is the kind of racial and, and national character uh, um, categories of the Portuguese presence is very nuanced there are Portuguese and then there are Mesito and there are um, mixed race and there's um, that kind of gives them this nebulous and porous presence which helps them establish themselves across so many different kind of political and uh, cultural borders and the English start to tap into this and when they open up new settlements they invite these Portuguese communities in because they're a great kind of that they've established this kind of pre-existing Euro-Asian network of trade and cultural understanding and to tap into that is really the key to success for the company in that first half of the 17th century so in a way they kind of move away from that Dutch experience and they embrace more the Portuguese experience which is informal personal and private networks and they help anchor the English more firmly into the kind of commercial systems of of India and, and the wider area slightly full answer I'm sorry you've got me talking <laughs> I gave you I gave you a broad question <laughs> so that was a that was a brilliant answer and clearly this this new approach worked I think you you refer to he may be a little bit later than on than when we're talking about but you refer to Thomas Clark of Mesopotamia yeah. as a as a petty king almost yeah. who has taken these lessons to heart and he is dishing out favor and he is in contact with the local elites yeah. but he's not the only one by far is he No he's not so he's really the first one in the archive I can trace in being this situation where He's kind of disassociated himself to a degree from kind of the East India Company as an English enterprise. And while he remains the English chief um, on the Coromandel coast, um, he's more when the new English arrived to, to, to work in the region, you know, they're, they're kind of stunned by what he's transitioned to. Um, so the company is kind of beset by kind of financial and political crisis in the 1630s. Um, Charles I has allowed its monopoly uh, to, 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 to drop and it's being challenged by um, uh, various English merchant enterprises that are coming out to Asia. So it's not now the only English presence. Um, and politically, obviously, England is, is, is um, sliding into kind of constitutional disaster with the uh, British civil wars. So there's a kind of strain on the company uh, which forces it to uh, retrench its presence um, and less investment, less shipping. Uh, the English presence is kind of on the on the brink of collapsing entirely. Uh, you know, and every monsoon, every every sorry, every uh, um, fleet that comes from England to Asia, the first thing people in Asia ask is, uh, is that it? are we are we finished? Are we wound up? Don't forget about us. Bring us home if that's the case. So there's a real sense of impending corporate collapse and. Um, some of these key figures like uh, like Thomas Clark realise, well, that if their their nest is not going to be feathered by the company, which is the only reason they're in uh, in the company's employ, then they're going to see some of these opportunities themselves. And they realise that they can run this fabulously lucrative and, and socially rewarding private um, um, enterprise themselves. So um, using the company's name as the kind of official representative of of the English nation, they set up these kind of bailiwicks, these kind of private fiefdoms where, um, you know, they're investing with Asian partners, they're marrying into the kind of Indo-Portuguese elite of these coastal communities. And, and, and yes, yeah, so Thomas Clark was really the first example of someone I would really class as truly kind of this cosmopolitan transnational actor who's got a foot in the English and the Asian world and, and is an example of the kind of actor that can tie those worlds closer together. Um, so, you know, he's he's living outside of the factory in his own sort of um, palace. He's got, you know, an army of 
well, he's got an army, um, his own private <laughs> army. Um, he's got an army of servants. He's carried around in his fabulously wealthy palanquin. The people that kind of visit fresh out from England, you know, consider him more of a kind of Asian prince than than an English merchant. Um, you know, and, and there's one of them specifically, uh, uh, Andrew Cogan, who's kind of scandalised, and he's, you know, these are yeah petty kings they've got all the power and privilege and wealth and for for some it's you know it's a scandal this is corruption i've put that in quote marks they can't see of course um uh, definition of corruption obviously being um you know highly contested but um but for a lot of people this was the new key to success we have to they had to anchor themselves in and 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 kind of and and kind of agilely or, or nimbly insert themselves into these kind of local social and commercial hierarchies and only then can they open up new new opportunities for the company itself of investment of of you know demographic um resources by people actually emigrating and moving to to company cities and helping to uh increase trade and establish them as places to visit by other traders um and you know and it's i call him kind of ground zero uh thomas clark because in terms of the archival record he's he's the most kind of obvious uh, actor but it's worth saying that uh, but by at least the 1620s uh, in Surat um, and on the western coast of India um, to um, private trade had become so um, um, synonymous with establishing relationships with the Indo-Portuguese that it was known to, to be a private trader was was known as to be a, a Catholica someone who's indulging in the Catholic religion and who's kind of going all in in the Indo-Portuguese culture. Um, so it's that kind of relationship between establishing or integrating with existing Asian and, and Indo-Asian communities, uh, sorry, uh, Indo-Portuguese communities, and having kind of achieved some level of commercial success. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and that's, that has a real impact. That's for me, you know, Tom's Clark is... Uh, they get they get rid of him. They're, they're scandalized by him. But he is, you know, it's it's established. It's a dynamic that works. The company as a official corporation is failing. And yet here's the beginning of this thriving private world of company servants finding their own way in Asia. And that's largely by adopting kind of local uh, customs and cultures and really becoming part of the uh, landscape in a way that the company as an official um you know actor of the english state can't 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 be seen to kind of be subordinating itself and to becoming so kind of um native in a way um, it does so later but at this early point in the early 16th uh, sorry the early 17th century it's left to the servants to do it and this the servants at this point are more successful than the company itself which is a strange dynamic by the ter by the sort of mid 17th century so yeah so people like thomas clark are, are, are by the 1630s 1640s they start to lead the way as the company itself crumbles it just occurred to me then that it just seems like the worst case of incompetent managers telling you how to do your job yeah that ever that these these servants out in asia making a vast amount of wealth and clearly succeeding and then being receiving angry letters from the bosses back home saying what are you doing you should do it our way we know the proper way to do it of course yeah and that's i mean that's certainly in the first half of the book that's kind of the central you know point of contest that i like to focus on um is that and it's part of talking about how does how does overseas european enterprise um how does it work and at the center of that private kind of uh, integration and expansion is is a real kind of flashpoint of conflict between what the nation state demands and what metropolitan authorities like the directors and the English shareholders demand and what is actually um, possible or practical um, beyond the Cape of Good Hope and um, and there's a real kind of vision of uh, a fissure of kind of conflict and you know, some of it turns spectacularly violent as the kind of court of directors and london tries to assert itself it and in it, kind of withering its presence in asia by by abandoning factories scaling down investment reducing shipping um it, in a way it's kind of it, it kind of um you know um surrendered um its control of um english expansion or english policy to its servants and and they they so in a way they're filling a vacuum by the kind of 
um, withering corporate framework um, to the point that they're then able to reshape what the company becomes and how it operates. And I think part of it is that, that you know, it's how do long distance enterprises operate? Um, and the, traditionally, the historically has been concerned this idea of this kind of a, the agency problem, that the understanding how the company operated was understanding how governors or the directors or the investors got control of wayward or corrupt servants but and i think it's a fabulous book by emily erickson um monopoly versus free trade which showed that actually this kind of decentralized dynamic in which you know the captains of east india company ships and their servants kind of lead the way is is actually very successful because they know what they're doing they know what conditions are like they know what it takes to succeed in and to do to do uh you know trade deals and to and to succeed diplomatically and the correspondence because obviously heavily focused on kind of the correspondence coming from london to asia it's it's heavily focused on this being a problem and it's a problem that needs to be resolved and the historic theme kind of past 20 years has focused on or what mechanisms were developed to to to, to keep these wayward servants under control and it's fed into a flourishing you know historic on corruption in the early modern period and the you know the 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 lines between what's public and what's private but in a way i think that misses the point um i think that um you know the successful european enterprises in asia were ones that were highly de decentralized and led by servants on the spot that were able to um adapt and in a way drag the company willingly or unwillingly into these sort of new opportunities um otherwise if it's led by london it's going to be largely led by a national interest which um which kind of undermines the effectiveness of the company as this autonomous agile actor that can dip in and out of different political and cultural systems so yeah so i think by by the mid 17th century the company servants are reconfiguring um, the aims and the and the and the capabilities of the company, and doing it in a far more kind of local context rather than a national English enterprise, which which just didn't work. No one wanted their goods. They didn't have the resources to sustain that presence. They couldn't compete with the Dutch, and instability at home in England is undermining the whole process. And servants just realised that 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 had to be abandoned, and that that they had to find their own way, and and they do. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? So the company servants realising the benefits of integration with these Asian societies, uh, that seems to be one significant turning point uh, that you present in the book. But the other seems to be the founding of Madras, uh, modern Chennai. Um, so I'm wondering if you could explain why was Madras founded and why did Madras succeed when all its predecessors either failed or just kind of scraped along? 
Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I, I, for me, the founding of Madras was the kind of um, the period in which the company starts to climb out of the hole it's getting itself into. So, um, I mean, that, that does take a while, but um, around the kind of mid 1630s, when it looks like the crowns abandoned the company's monopoly um, and there's a e- general economic crisis historiographically which is still massively debated was it spanish silver was it pre-existing inflation there's a there's a whole different reason but um that generally the liquidity of the company its ability to raise capital was was severely curtailed and limited um and it's withdrawn um a lot of its uh factories and its presence has shrunk to just a handful of factories across the whole kind of indian ocean uh so it's it's the for me it's the kind of the crux of if the company was ever going to fail it was going to be at that point um and company servants were sort of well aware um especially um you know a lot of our historiography is focused on uh surat and the west coast of india and it was the company was quite well integrated into the um western indian uh, trading system um with its links to um persia and, and the red sea and east, and uh, east africa but uh, not not really enough's been done in this period on the coromandel coast and um uh, certainly the trade had gotten so bad that the company servants in places like masalapatam and and bantam were you know, begging for money they hadn't seen chess of money you know in three years i think by 1636 or 37 and um they were all sort of getting ready to depart really um so so for me it's that when uh, francis day negotiates um for the grant of what becomes madras it's a point that um that reverses the company's fortune i mean that the the benefits aren't seen for a couple of decades but for me it was a really uh, interesting turning point so i think it's the first settlement to be acquired uh, when the company servants have begun to abandon the official kind of corporate framework um, of promoting national interest of of adhering to company rules and and policies and they're they're starting to insinuate themselves in their local context and rely not on Europe for their investment or orders or capital or whatever but from uh, but but with the local Asian constituencies in which they forward relationships with. Um, so for me, it made the foundation of Madras totally different. I think that's reflected in its first few years. Um, so the the grant for Madras is um, is this kind of spectacular document, which for 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 too long has kind of been a look at as, as the way in which the company is able to extract advantages from from this Asian ruler. But actually, I think what I've tried to do is restudy the the grant for Madras, in, in, which was made in 1639 and 1640, as actually, um, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the stipulations of what the company are responsible for in terms of shipping and improving the economy of the region and um, in you know creating a strong fortress. Yeah, there was a lot of um, promises that the English made, and in return, they would obviously get, um, you know, uh, a territory to establish a fort and to trade customs free. Um, and so, it wasn't a, a document extracted from an Asian ruler, but it seemed to be a kind of, kind of a form of partnership or collaboration in which there's a um, um, a governor of um, uh, a local Nayak who were. Very powerful um, district rulers in, in in southern India, um, wanting to uh, consolidate his own authority, improve his own revenues, and invited this kind of commercial actor in uh, on the promise that they would fortify and consolidate his authority and act as loyal subjects. So it's really interesting. This is idea of um, you know integrating politically, and um, in the first few years, the company or the servants on the spot. Um, marry into local Indo-Portuguese families. So the uh, we often think of Madras as this tabula rasa, this kind of blank space. It's often described in history books as this kind of stretch of empty sandy beach, which is complete rubbish. It's um, situated in a very densely populated, highly complex uh, agrarian region, which has very extensively developed um textile manufacturing centers um and it's embedded in the Vijayanagaran empire which is the last great hindu empire of, on the indian subcontinent which has kind of shrunk to 
the kind of very south of uh, of India. Um, and um, and the nearest or the biggest city to, to Madras was just three miles away. It's San Tomé. It's a Portuguese settlement. Uh, and the Mylapore region, which surrounded Madras, was home to very dense populations of Indo-Portuguese families. And the company get this grant, but they've got nothing. The, the, the ships they they moved they moved to Madras with have been sunk. Uh, there's no money coming out of London. They 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 really they they present a really pathetic spectacle um, of the the usual story for Madras is you know the English you know march out of their ships and they play the you know the uh, the 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 trumpet and they're waving the flag and it's just not what happens actually what happens is they're landed and their ships are wrecked and they turn up at madras with mostly you know indian um um indo-portuguese merchants and soldiers from uh, a settlement they had abandoned further up the coast there's only i think about maybe a dozen english amongst them um and they immediately they attract migration to their new territory of Madras by uh, trying to incentivize the Indo-Portuguese and Indian uh, dyers and weavers and those involved in textile production. And they do that by offering concessions on, on customs taxes, by offering them, you know, free uh, homes and lots and lots of privileges. So it's about uh, being able to attract these existing communities to them, as opposed to building entirely new colonial uh, uh, communities. That 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 doesn't happen, um, and and therefore it's a sort of joint enterprise, and um, and they're very successful. And kind of within a couple of years, there's 400 Indo-Portuguese and Indian families living. Uh, but what I found really significant in terms of understanding what the company was and how it operated and how it's usually understood as this kind of fiscal military actor projecting England's power overseas is that uh, none of what becomes Fort St. George, um, which is the fort at Madras, none of it is actually built or financed by the company itself. It's done through private initiatives of company servants, um, whether it's their trading partners that uh, that lend the money, the capital, or whether it's the company servants themselves using their profits from private trade to finance the building. Um, and there's some absolutely rich and great material of one of the first company servants to, to be stationed at Madras, where well, its founder, uh, Francis Day, is He's this is such a private initiative that he's funding one of the stone bastions of Fort St. George and stuff. And it's absolutely kidding him. It's it's one of his colleagues and you know, it goes to the court of committees, the directors and begs them to relieve him. It's costing him 10,000 pagodas or something, which is almost his entire private trading fortune. Um, and and the other three bastions were built through the capital borrowed um, or lent by um Indo-Portuguese or Indian merchants. So it's a real kind of Anglo-Asian enterprise and it's the first settlement really that um, uh, that grows up through this new kind of strategy of, of utilising local sources of authority, the Nyack's grant and of commerce and capital. Um, and, um, and, and, and so it's unique in that respect. Um, and it's it's uniquely successful as well in this earlier period. The company itself are outraged that this that they've gone off and um, built a new settlement at a time when the company was actually shutting settlements down because it couldn't afford them. Um, and they do their utmost to to try and undermine Madras. They they send no shipping there, no money. In fact, an, an English company ship sails past Madras and uh, the servants at Madras actually uh, uh, grab it and steal some chests of money off it to fund their <laughs> early investments. And they write this letter to the director saying, I'm so sorry we had to do this, but you kind of gave us no choice. Um, so when we look at uh, the East India Company's early development, we think of it as empire building. You know, it's, it's such a misleading description. This, you know, any the early success and growth it has is is largely to these private initiatives and to the resources and power of these Indian and Indo-Portuguese elites that are willing to not just invite uh, Europeans in to settle there but to partner with them to lend money to them um, to, to sustain their presence and to to patronize them as well and there's a series of new grants over the next 20 years that follows as the company um, really attempts to to market itself as this loyal subject of these regional rulers um, and the powers that they get to govern Madras, for example, powers, judicial powers to try um, crimes and to hold courts and 
to exercise uh, maritime jurisdiction and to expand their fort. These all come from these charters or grants that are issued by um, local Indian rulers. Um, so yeah, the development growth in Madras is, is, is very much part of a local framework and not a national English one. So that's why I think it's such a turning point. And what happens is that most of the settlements that are then subsequently established um, follow this, this strategy. I'm thinking of Calcutta especially. It's very much um, formed locally by company servants in partnership with local elites. Um, and that's that's why I think it, it it's worth making a big deal with the foundation of Madras, not for the usual traditional reasons of, you know, of, you know, this is an example of English superiority or, or success, but really it's an example of how weak English national interest have become and how important private agency was in um, integrating the company. That's where success lay in working within and with local frameworks and elites and not, this is not an English world, this is an Asian world and the English are learning to work within it. I think you make it very interesting in the book the way that these private actors, they bring advantage to the company, they, they bring the company back and they stop it collapsing. But at the same time, it's a source of friction within the company agents themselves. Um, I think you start the book with essentially a, a what seems to be like a coup. One faction imprisons another faction and both sides are company servants with their Asian allies. Yeah. But it's, a, it's part of a larger power struggle and the company is just part of it. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, and that's really part of the tension between uh, as the period, you know, this 10, 20 year period in the mid 17th century when the company is decentralizing, it's being power is shifting from the corporate framework and the kind of interests of the nation state to the servants and their private networks. And that's not done, that, that doesn't happen peacefully or, or willingly. That's, that's contested at every stage. And, um, I, and I think that uh, yeah, the book it paints a very positive picture of the way in which the company's development is decentralised and led by this, uh, you know, conscious effort to integrate themselves locally and, and utilise that and, um, and, and how this was not directed by English national interest or even by the the company itself. But the, the, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the, the, the kind of consequences of that were... Um, so this Hermesian nightmare of this, you know, these these this patchwork of these fiefdoms and um, violence um, and uh, faction and instability. So you know, if you take a kind of bird's eye view of the company's presence around 1650, 1660, it's a com it's in complete chaos, and that's part of the the kind of transition, this decentralisation. Um, and while it, that when that's eventually embraced by the company and and becomes a sort of uh, English strategy overseas by the end of the 17th century. Before that point, it is an absolute mess. Um, and I think what I wanted to do was in, in highlighting just um, how how important faction became in these company settlements um, as private interest was basically rampant and un unregulated, is that it showed how unimportant kind of English ideas about political economy and order and uh, you know, reformation of manners and um, all of this stuff that there's been a lot of work done on it. Just, you know, the the uh, and you know, Miles Ogborn's fantastic book Indian Inc. about this idea that you know order and you know social conformity was established, and even the older, even even the older 20th century, even the Victorian historiography, which showed um, that in these English cities and towns were bastions of stability amongst the kind of chaos of Asia um is that that's you know that's not that's not the case remotely whatsoever and that with you know spaces which are unregulated and that are run by private interests that they are they are violent and they are factional and they are unstable and madras is a perfect example of that um the important element in madras is not the english agent or governor <clears throat> um it's um the asian elites that are using madras for their own purposes um so there's the um company um government of madras which is located in fort st george the fort but then there's madras town itself um which um there's perhaps maybe four or five hundred english in fort st george but there's well, the estimates wild massively, but even if we take the, the smallest, maybe 50,000 
people in the Madras town itself. Um, it's an important demographic centre. It's an important centre of trade and also culture. There are important or significant religious temples established there. It's a meeting point between uh, um, Armenians and, and Jews and Gujarats and Persians. And <clears throat> so it's, a, it's a really it's emerging as an important port in the Indian Ocean world. Um, and Indian elites are using the company as much as the company are using them. And part of that is um, it kind of splits these company servants. How can they best exploit this unique opportunity? And they're often on opposing sides of these private networks. And um, Majas becomes really interesting because it's dominated by two castes, two Indian castes, um, which we've anglicized to the, the left hand and the right hand caste. And they have different boundaries in the town. They patronize or, um, or maintain different religious processions. Um, it's, it's a complete uh, division of the town. Uh, there's some overlap, but generally they, um, while they reside within Madras, they, um, they're governed by a wider kind of um, cultural religious um, um, frameworks that, that, cover the whole kind of region and not just madras and and therefore the english have little control on that and they're just kind of in a way they're just pawns in these um caste conflicts and and attempts to dominate the the port itself um and but but that the, but there's that side of it it's kind of the impact of the english integrating themselves with these pre-existing contested networks and, and factions um and religious divisions so that was one way to also show, you know, that the English are the minor player, um, certainly still in the 17th century. Um, but then, you know, there's as the company decentralizes and there's there's a power vacuum, you know, power vacuums are are filled and um, there's immense struggles all across company settlements as to which private faction is or is going to be the one to profit the most from the company's decentralization so there's a fantastic episode in the 1660s in madras where um this kind of coalition of um company servants and indian elites have formed to ensure the town remains predominantly catholic or or hindu that the town remains predominantly in the control of certain indian groups um and the company at the same time want to uh, regulate madras more they uh, send a new governor out. Um, they want to anglicize it more, establish an Anglican church, and they send out a new reverend. And they want to plug Madras more firmly into the corporate framework. After 1658, when it gets its permanent charter and kind of rejuvenates and attracts more capital, and the English state is more capable of kind of inserting itself overseas. Um, and so there's these kind of two forces, this decentralized transnational force that wants to shape the company. And there's this kind of attempt by the company itself to reinsert itself in the kind of settlements that it's acquired in this kind of period. Uh, yeah, it's complete chaos. There are there's military coups. Um, people are locked up. There's, you know, purges and, and massacres. And um, Madras is basically virtually independent for three years. Um, this rebellion led by this chap, Sir Edward Winter, who profits more from um, Madras being under the control of Indian elites than it does being under the control of the East India Company. And the company, London, have to send out a military flotilla to regain control of, of Madras. And, and in a way, that's also another key turning point um, when the company realised that if they don't allow for private interest, then they're going to be constantly caught up in these factional struggles and these rebellions. And it's after the they regain control of Madras that instead of punishing the rebels, the Anglo-Indian uh, coalition which sees control they they mollify them they grant with private trade had been illegal they they legalize private trade um and from that point on from kind of the 1670s onwards uh the company becomes more responsive to the demands of its servants and their kind of uh, cross-cultural networks um so that's that also represents an important shift um and um uh, so so yeah so there's you know the downside to private interest is that it's you know it, it's politically quite chaotic and <laughs> these english plug themselves into these kind of existing indian conflicts and contests but the other side is that the the it's a it's a painful learning experience for the company's metropolitan authorities and they, and they realize they make a very smart decision where the writing's on the wall you know the company has decentralized and 
in their absence um it's fully entrenched in not in anglican uh, uh um, um english uh, european ways but in kind of uh catholic and hindu and 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 Muslim ways and its settlements have these massive populations that are not English or Protestant um, and they have to cater to those needs um, and you see that by the end of the 17th century that uh, the company is transitioned to something that's far more hybrid and transnational which wasn't the intention in 1600 when Elizabeth launches the East India Company its prime aim is to you know acquire markets to vent English goods but by 1700 it's about as far away from that as it can be. So this has been incredibly fascinating, David. If listeners want to read more of your work, The Origins of the British Empire in Asia is available, but it's more of a scholarly work. But I believe you are currently working on something that might be more of interest to a general readership. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Sam. So, yes. So that's out with Cambridge University Press was out uh, in the summer at the height of the pandemic. <laughs> um and uh yeah you're absolutely right it's my first kind of monograph it's quite a scholarly piece of work and um uh but my next book project which i've just kind of um um signed a contract for which i, I can't be too specific about that yet but um it's an early modern history of the british empire um from a non-british perspective um and it's a global history so yeah i'm kind of moving beyond just looking at the English in Asia and looking at the expansion of the British Empire in the Atlantic and in Africa and and and, uh, and the Mediterranean as well as Asia but looking from a non-British perspective so how did the cultures and states that encountered the British uh, and, and it's and it's taking a familiar theme from from this first book it's looking at the resilience and the diversity and the um and the capabilities of these cultures and states, which often disappear very early on in narratives of the British Empire. But this book makes the argument that they endured in remarkable ways and not, were not just shaped by the British, but in, in, in turn were able to shape the British themselves and the way in which the, the empire developed. So it's got fantastic um, uh, um, case studies looking at, um, obviously, um, um, the way in which the... Um, um, English uh, established colonies in places like Virginia, but the way in which the uh, Powhatans are able to resist and then accommodate and then transform um, uh, the English presence there, all the way through looking to the way in which the rise of Bombay is is actually more of a marginal footnote in the rise of the Maratha Empire, and um, so it's got these kind of surprising um, uh, twists on on what are probably well known stories. Um, but uh, that goes all the way from fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred, um, and um, I can say that that's due out in twenty twenty two. With uh, you're right, with a non academic uh, publisher, so it will be far more accessible and. Um, very narrative driven, but still retaining that kind of core archival um, uh, research. And I'm you know, doing the same thing as I do with with Adrian's is looking at sources that, uh, do, that, that kind of are able to flip the perspective away from the British and to understand what becomes the British Empire by 1800 was 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 not intended. Um, it was an entirely different beast. And that's largely because of these resilient, powerful non-European actors that are able to shape the way the British um, expand overseas. So hopefully it's an empowering global history. It gives a stronger voice to non-European, non-white actors that are often passive victims in colonial histories. I'm really excited to hear more about that, hopefully in the new year. And I should say that uh, Origins of the British Empire in Asia, while it's still academic, is still highly, highly readable and I would recommend it. There's a paperback version due out in 2021, I believe. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully. So uh, when that when that does uh, emerge, I will make sure to to let people know, because I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. And on that note, thank you very much, David, for coming on. This has been a real delight. My pleasure. Thank you, Sam, for having me. It's been great to chat. Thank you. Since speaking to Dr. Vivas in December, he has been able to reveal more information about his upcoming book. It will be called The Mirage of Empire a new history of the world at the dawn of British expansion, due out late 2022. It takes a non-European perspective of Britain's expansion and argues for the resilience and power of the non-European states Britain came into contact with, 
and their ability to resist and even reshape Britain's expansion for far longer than we usually think. The title refers to the mirage erected by the Victorians who sought to rewrite this earlier period of encounter and portray everyone else as barbaric, or spaces as empty, etc., when in fact they were anything but. So it's peeking behind that mirage and revealing the richness of the early modern world. It sounds like a fantastic, fascinating book, and I cannot wait to read it. Thanks once again to Dr. Vivas for coming on the show, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.